Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 18. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will give your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Very nice to see you. Happy Labor Day weekend. All right, we made it to the end of summer. And some of you are like, that's not what I feel like. I don't feel like we made it. I feel like eh, it's the end of summer. But anyway, whatever. Um, we are at the last message in this series. We've been in, you know, since, since you know, the first of July, uh, where we've been meditating on the faithfulness of God. Our, our, uh, our, our team, our, our, our leadership, you know, praying about um, what are we going to spend this summer on and um, thought there was nothing we could, we could give our time to more beneficial than meditating on the character of God its reliability, its dependability, God's, uh, God's faithfulness, no matter what our moods are like, what our circumstances are like, is there, is there a real practical way that we can count on God um, to, to, to be there? So uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. We've already um, been crying out to you, God, but I believe that what is present in this space is more than just the sum total of, um, of human ability and human experience and human expectation that um, you invite us to, to come together and that something um, beyond any one of us happens when we're in the room together. And so I just ask you, Holy Spirit, to help me and to help um, everyone here. Lord, give us ears to hear what you want to say, God, through all that's prepared pray that what you want to say, the way you might want to comfort our hearts or uh, enlighten our minds or uh, stir our spirits, I pray that you would uh, this morning. And I just ask for your help, Lord, that as we reflect on your faithfulness, that your faithfulness would be demonstrated here um, in, in tangible ways. I pray this in, in, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I was in the park uh, yesterday, Prospect Park, and basically in the dead, you know, center-ish, not dead center-ish, um, uh, I was at the baseball field. So you know where those are. That's not the dead center. But I was in the park a fair, a fair ways, okay? And I was playing baseball. This is something that I do fairly often. I was with my two older sons and a, a few other families had, had joined in. We're playing a pickup game of baseball. It's like the perfect weather outside, blue skies. It's, you know, in the 70s, light breeze. Just like one of those days in New York where you're like, this is the best place ever. Like, I can smell no trash. Like, this is, I, I, like, the train is not late. Everything is going well. And uh, we're, we're playing, and all of a sudden, like, there's so many sounds. Like, someone's setting off, like, it, it sounds like fireworks over here. Like, there's so many sounds going on in the park, and you just filter them out. Like, you just, you're so used to life in the city, and you filter out the sounds. But there was a, a set of sounds that began kind of up the hill. You guys know where the band shell is. So I'm in the baseball fields, and kind of up the hill where, where the band shell is, there began to be, like, really loud screaming. And I was like, didn't think anything of it because it's, there's really loud screaming all the time in the park. But this really loud screaming kind of went on for a little bit longer than normal. And it was hard to tell if it was like ex exuberant, excited screaming or if it was terrified screaming. And then when it went on a little bit longer, I started to feel nervous. Like, what is going on? Because it sounds like people are screaming in alarm. And then I was like, maybe it's just me, like I've seen too much TV, I've maybe too many news feeds or whatever, like, um, and so I, I start looking around, that's what you do, you check to see how your reaction gauges against other people, and I saw that I wasn't the only one who was looking, and I saw a few people who had stopped and like, they were riding their bike and they'd gotten off, and there's that eerie feeling where you're like, just distant enough from people in the park that like you're not gonna like speak to them, but it's almost so it makes it feel like a movie where you're seeing people react to a sound and like all of us turn our collective attention to something. And I was like, I don't know if a, if a, a surprise party has just happened and someone's been given an unexpected diamond engagement ring and people are reacting in, in exuberance because of that or if and this was my honest thought, and I don't feel like I'm a terribly paranoid person, but I was like, this sounds like an active shooter to me. And I don't know if I would have thought that five years ago, but enough times you, you wake up and you hear or you're falling asleep and, and you, you see come across your, your feed that there's been another one of these incidents. And so it's in the back of my mind that we live in the type of world where this kind of thing happens now. And so when I hear a mixture of, you know, confusing, maybe too long lingering, slightly disturbing sounds in the park on a perfect beautiful day when I'm playing baseball with my kids and other families, I go to, I don't know if that's a birthday party or an active shooter situation. So what do you do? Then I started calling the people who, like, because we had, uh, my other smaller kids were closer to where the, the, the sound was coming from. I call and my wife had gone home to take kids to the bathroom because park bathrooms. And... Um, and it ended up a few moments passed by, and it turns out like nothing alarming had happened. And whew, I could have gotten to that at the beginning. Let us off the hook earlier next time. Um, no, 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 no violence was taking place. It must have been something like just people really worked up about, you know, Labor Day weekend. I don't know what it was, but um, it was really, and I was like, am I crazy? And I was asking a few other people, like one of the other guys who was playing, I was like, what did, what did you think that was? And I was like, waiting on someone else to say, like, shooter, right? Like, I don't want to think that, but that's what I was thinking. And I don't know 
what you think about when you think about these situations coming up and, and uh, what feels to me like the increasing volatility of our, of our, um, of our, of our world together. The, this sort of like, we have this frenzied way of taking in information and then we also have a frenzied way of, that seems reactionary to how we live together in this time. Like I said, I don't know five years ago, 10 years ago, um, certainly pre-2001, I don't know that I would have ever even had any thought like that if I heard those sounds, but I, but I have them now. And, and of course, <laughs> we are not the first generation of people to, to think things are massively challenging for us. We are not the first um, to, to, to think that maybe things are like, uh, you know, trending in a very difficult or negative direction. We also have to be honest about there are massive, unprecedented, profound amounts of good that are true in our world right now. It's like, in, in some ways, it's one of the best times ever to be alive. So whatever we're facing, we also have to, to lay it across that, that reality that there's so many good things as well. So we're not just sounding the alarm, but we live in a world that can be like, is it a surprise party or is it an active shooter? And we have to say, that's, that's where we are right now. What do we do about that? Between waking up to news of, of war or news of vicious political division and then make-a-wish stories, do you know that this category of story, like I, we have Sports Center on in our house, probably too much, but like everyone can be passing through the living room and they'll do a make-a-wish story, which is like a child who has, had, who has cancer or, or, and, and it doesn't look good, it's p- potentially terminal, and they're, they're doing a story where they're bringing this kid to their dream team to meet their favorite player and everyone in our family just go, whatever they're doing just sort of like stops and we're like, like spread out in our living room is like, I'm not crying, you're crying. Just like staring at this, like the most inspiring, tender-hearted, beautiful things. Like that is interp- interspersed with like th- this incredible division that seems run through our society. Between days when you feel on top of the world and days where you feel like, I want to give up. So in the middle of that, what is reliable, Really? Not like, this is what I should say because I'm in church. What is really reliable for you? What in the most practical way do you depend on on a day-to-day basis? Asking and answering that question is why we've been in this meditation on the faithfulness of God throughout, throughout the summer. What is reliable? What is dependable? If we're honest, some of you would say the last thing I would put in that category is God. <laughs> I've experienced too much pain, too much of the world's you know, volatility, too much disappointment, too much grief in my life. And it's so easy to run that disappointment up the flagpole, attach it to God, and say, if you're there, it's your fault. And if you're not there, well, it's your fault for not being there. Like, you, you, we sort of have this ethos in the water, like, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. So for some of us, it's very challenging to think of God, if God is there as, at all, as someone that you can really count on. On the other hand, if, if God is there, like let's just say for a minute, suspend our, our unbelief. If God is there and God does care, if it could even be said that God's love and faithfulness could be what this, this letter says a little later, that God's love and faithfulness could be like an anchor for your soul, what would that be like? What would that, the experience of that reliability and that dependability be like? How would that change how you think and feel? How would that change our daily lives? 
So we're ending this series. We're ending on sort of uh, a summation of meditation on the faithfulness of God. And we're, we chose Hebrews 2 here um, because it settles with beauty and power on the faithfulness and mercy of God, specifically expressed in the person of Jesus. The faithfulness and mercy of God are put forward to us in utter dependability and reliability in this passage through the person of Jesus. And I thought, there's no better place. No one's going to be here anyway. There's no better place for us to end Labor Day weekend, the end of our summer series in in this space. So, In particular, this passage is directing us to see that God has entered into the the claim of the text, right? Whatever you believe about God, the claim of the text is that God has entered into the chaos. He has entered into the the most elemental, challenging, confronting, disoriented, uh, disintegrating aspects of our story that God has entered all the way into those and that he can identify with us at every level. This also happens to be, there's a, a few sections in the New Testament that are like, they end up being like short paragraph long summaries of what the entire story arc of the scriptures is about. From Genesis to Revelation, like all the Torah, all the Hebrew law and prophets, all the accounts of Jesus' life and the epistles, and then all that comes after that, the entire thing, 66 books, all these different stories, all these different authors, is there is a through line, and there's a few passages in the New Testament that give us the, the, the sort of sweeping arc, and this is one of them. Basically, it's saying, it's succinctly giving us this meta vision of what is happening across the whole of God's story. And this is what it points to. It, it, it begins to try to answer the question what is God's heart for human beings? I want you just to think about that in your mind as I go through a couple of these things that I think this passage suggests. I want you to think what you think the answer is. Something I pray over my children at night is that they would know why God put them on the earth that they would have a sense of that. This passage is, is attempting to hint at or to directly answer what is God's heart in intention for human beings in the first place. And if you trace that, if you pull that down into a personal level, what is God's intention and heart for my life? How am I supposed to live? So that's one of the things that it addresses. A second thing that it addresses is the biggest problems in our world. The fact that you might mistake someone's birthday party for an active shooter situation because we live in a world that is broken, that has pain, that is run through with inconsistencies, that in so many ways, if we mark the the narrative of our life, it is many small tragedies ending in death. So if whatever God's beautiful heart is for hum- humanity and even for my life, there's a massive amount of problems and inconsistency and pain and disappointment and brokenness and disintegration at work. What do we do about that? And the, and the passage is, is answering. Here's what, whether you believe it or not, here's what the scriptures present as God having done about this. And then how... Does God's actions impact, change our world, change an ordinary Wednesday for us? So, gee, that's pretty, like I said, it's meta. We're not, we're, like, we're not going to cover the entire arc of the whole scriptures, but this is a succinct summary passage in the New Testament that is saying this is what's happening across the whole, whole story here. So there's a lot in each of those moments. I want you to know that they're there, basically. So you can go back and, and, and meditate on this a little bit on your own. And then I want to end on three cheerful summer notes, how Jesus deals with death, suffering, and temptation. Happy Labor Day. Later we'll picnic. It'll be great. So 
The first thing I want us to notice is uh, I think that this passage that begins with a really poetic, massive understatement. Um, so we're, we're going to read this quote. The, the quote that's, um, that's introduced, uh, we'll put it on the screen, is, um, yeah, is, this is Hebrews 2, but it's quoting Psalm 8, which is one of the clues that you're getting a succinct sort of summary because it's going all the way back to the center of Israel's history when David was king and saying what was, what was going on here. And then David is pointing all the way back to the very beginning. So it's one of those things that's giving us like sort of a wider and wider view of things. Also, I think this is the best way to introduce a quote anywhere. But there is a place where someone has testified. Basically, like, I'm totally off the hook for knowing who said this or where, but some, like, you know, just like, I believe it was someone sometime who said, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but then they quote, the, the, uh, the, 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 the writer quotes from Psalm 8. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet and putting everything under them God left nothing that is not subject to them yet at present we do not see everything subject to them so what's going on what, what why quote this this psalm this sort of like outcry of the heart of David basically like a very human thing like what what am I anyway to you God what am I to you anyway universe where am I in this in this big wide world the passage is saying whatever else it's saying it's saying that God has massive profound intentions for human beings <laughs> namely to to share life with us like I want you to think of whatever construct you have of God in your mind. What do you imagine God to be like? Long beard, kind of frustrated, long list of your failures, disinterested in your pain, whatever, or, or maybe like incredibly tender-hearted, the literally best clear-eyed life coach you could possibly want. Whatever your picture of God is, this passage is saying that God wants to have a, a profound share with us in the world. Uh, that, that, that he wants to share life with us, to share the world with us in some way. And right, this, this does stretch our imagination that God wants to give us real authority in a relational context, in connection with God and in connection with one another to run the world well. To bring a, a, this Hebrew concept of shalom and see it spread to the fractured margins of our society and our world. That God wants to give us a real share, a real sense of relational authority and connection with him and one another to run the world well. Whether you believe in God or not, like we human beings have a significant responsibility on the earth to one another, to our human communities, and, and to, our, uh, to our planet, right? So we have to answer the question, are we running our lives and running our society and running the world well? And this passage seems to say, God wants us right in the heart of that, saying, I have crowned you with glory. I've set you just lower than the angels. I've given you tremendous responsibility to share with me in the running of the world, we consistently get this message. This is a summary passage, and if you look, you will find this message consistently represented across the scriptures. God is a relational God. Somehow, in God's very character, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is relationship even in oneness. And God is extending out that Trinitarian relationship to bring us in to say, you are my sons and daughters. I want you to participate in the running of a world of shalom with me. 
however far we are right in this moment from that reality feeling realized. In, in, the, in the words of the Genesis account, the, the, the words that are used to depict this are dominion and authority. There's this concept of a, of a, of a Hebrew steward or a shomar. Basically like, I'm giving you my, this, this thing and I want you to steward it well. With, you know, with, with my guidance and help and assistance, I want you to steward it well. And I'm going to come back and see how it's going. And, and, and that our first ancestors stumbled greatly in that responsibility. This, like, I think we should be honest. When we hear words like, I don't know what your initial reaction is when you hear words like dominion or authority or made subject to them. I don't know if you're like, I just immediately go to like Handmaid's Tale, people walking around with guns. Like dominion and authority means something negative always. But in this context, in the way the scripture is putting it forward, it's not like power by dominance. It's not like you're gonna wrangle by your own willpower and effort the world into to being subject to you. It is uh, in, instead a wise and tender care that has responsibility at its very heart that is rooted and motivated in love. That's the type of shomar authority dominion that, that God is sharing, that Yahweh is sharing with us in, in Genesis. And so the psalmist is asking this very human question. What is my life? What is human being? What are human beings that you should be mindful of them? What are our lives together? Like, should I think of myself in the most insignificant terms? Like, should I do? And this is so amazing that it's possible now. Like, should I start from where I am and zoom up and see this school and then zoom out and see the neighborhood and then zoom out and see the city and then zoom out and see the country and then zoom out and see the planet and then zoom out and see the, like, should I? And I realize like how, like, I am a speck on this blue planet. And then if I, I do that high, but also wide, like across all the generations, how many people have, have been around across all these stories? And, and like, right, you've asked a question like that before. What is my life like in, in, in relationship to how big it all is and how wide it all is? Should I, should, should I expect anybody to care about me or God to care about me, right? And like, there, it could be depressing, the psalmist is asking a very honest human question. Or should I see that in spite of all of that smallness in size and smallness in scope of timeline, that I should be loved and, and, and feel, feel loved and feel honored that, that the God who had a hand in crafting that entire wideness and bigness knows me by name. Somehow it says knows the hairs on my head, knows every detail of the narrative of my story, like knit me together, like is deeply and intimately concerned with the intricacies of my life. Should I, should I feel small and insignificant or should I feel tremendously honored that I'm known and even maybe loved? What is mankind that you are mindful of? Then that's the question. And the psalmist is saying, God has given us this incredible share. Like, one of the things the psalms do is they speak to the soul. Like, I can have a feeling where my soul is speaking to me and I can listen to it. Like, where's this feeling coming from? Should I, uh, should I listen to it? Or I can just let it go and I can speak to my soul and say, like, hey, remember the truth. Remember the story you're in. Remember the things that anchor your heart. The psalmist is saying, listen, don't forget God has given you an incredible share in this human story. Don't forget that. And then we come to the poetic understatement. 
God has given you this shomar, d- 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 dominion and authority, a share with him in running the world where, well, a share with you in bringing shalom to the fractured margins of our story and whatever, a share of walking with him in a meaningful way on an ordinary Wednesday when you just smell trash and you're exhausted. Like God wants you to know that your vocation matters in that time, that the small kindnesses that you show to your neighbor matter in that time, that the, the secret generosity that you've been developing matter, that the, the, the small disciplines of creativity that you've been enacting matter that God's saying I'm sharing the world with you and sharing a bringing of goodness the kingdom of God in your world through you yet at present we do not see everything subjected to them that's the poetic understatement that's like that all sounds beautiful but hey what about the active shooters what about the the chaos at our border right now what about this upcoming election? What about the fact that like, I just missed out on this promotion? What about the fact that I, was, I, was, I felt so sure that we were gonna be able to have a child and we haven't been? I felt so sure by this stage of my life I'd be at a different place and I'm not. I felt so sure that these things would be true and they don't feel true. So yet at present, we don't see everything subjected to them. Basically, it's a heart cry of the psalmist to say, where is it? That sounds fantastic, but look around. At at present, we don't see everything well-ordered by love. We don't see everything run through with the shalom of God. We don't see wise and tender care as the norm, responsibility flowing out of love. Whatever the kingdom of God is, whatever glimpses we may have seen of it, It is not anywhere near fully realized in our world. And the passage is honest, but it also may feel understated for you. I have friends who, in Florida, and they're really actually friends of friends. I met them, you know, but like when something bad happens, like you want to feel connected to it. It's a a part of how we are as human beings. And I don't, I don't know if you understand it more than me, but they went out fishing in, in West Palm. That's where I went to college. And uh, experienced fishermen, done this many times, the two of them together on the boat. They've been missing now for like 14 days. The Coast Guard's having to call off the search because there's a hurricane coming into to South Florida. So like, I wanna have a share with God in the world. And I can't imagine being in that house with that mom explaining to her little ones, I don't know if dad's coming back. They're looking for him. We don't at present see everything subjected to them. We don't at present see everything going as it should, right? We know that in a meta level, we know it in the personal nature of our own broken commitments to ourselves, right? To our own health, to our own vocation, to our own loved ones. Our own, our own sort of anxieties and depressions and, 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 and internal strife, right? It's, it's like, never mind shalom in the whole world. How about a little right here in my own brain? We do not see everything as it should be. And then this, the passage takes a turn of hope. It's holiday weekend. Thank, thank the Lord. The passage takes a turn of hope. Hebrews as a letter is, is, is a letter written about hope. It's written to people that are right in the middle of a real 
deep struggle that, that are, they don't know the end result of it. And, and the, the writer of Hebrews, whoever they are, is writing to console, to comfort, to inspire their soul with hope in the middle of that pain. And so he says, we don't see everything as it should be, but then the, the, the passage turns on the hope of, but we do see Jesus. For some of you, like you you choke up a little bit at that. Like, we do see Jesus. For some of you, you're like, how exactly would that help? The passage goes on to say, whatever else you think about him, the narrative of his life, we know uh, the claims of the end result of Jesus' human experience. It says that he's crowned with glory and honor. We also know what he has passed through in the 33 years of his life uh, in, in our midst, in this like one particular corner, you know, on the outskirts of the Ro- Roman Empire, this particular time in history, these 33 years that this man lived, we know, we know what he passed through. And, and the passage is claiming that Jesus is pulling these two worlds together. The intent, God's intention for human beings to have a full relational share in the authority of running the world well and the brokenness that we actually experience, that those things are being pulled together in a representative way in the person of Jesus is what this passage is claiming. And that we can look at the representative way Jesus pulls those two worlds together and we can draw significant, substantial, real life hope from that. It says, Tremendous things like he is willing to make you sons and daughters by experience of Yahweh. That you would have such confidence to cry out to God like, like God the Son cries out to God the Father and knows he's going to be heard. That that type of son and daughter you know, relationship would be true of you. That he can make you holy, whatever that means, right? Holiness in our, in our world, like, has gotten reduced in many situations to sort of like a religious, stodgy word that basically means rule keeping and being prideful about it. But holiness, when you look at the Hebrew tradition or, or what the New Testament is talking about, is the most full of zest, full of creativity, full of freedom, full of life, uh, unique individual way you could possibly live. It is in relational union, but it is the freest way to live. There's the, the utter relief. <laughs> of holiness, not the stodgy rule-keeping pride of some religious activity kept well. It is a life of relational union with God and with other people. And the title that's given to Jesus that pulls all these things together is that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And that's what I wanted to end this summer. We're, we go to the table every week, this broken body and shed blood, this bread and this cup representing a merciful and faithful high priest. It's no secret we, we end every week that way, so it's easy to say we're going to end the summer there. Uh, but this faithful high priest has passed through death, suffering, and temptation. And the claim of this passage is that he can so fully identify with those disintegrating agonizing, disappointing, painful realities of human experience that you can count on him not to be distant and far away, but to be so near, so understanding, so loving, so able to bear the unburdening of your heart in prayer, the unburdening of your heart in obedience, the the transformation of your life in, in holiness, that you can actually count on this Jesus somehow in a real tangible, ordinary Wednesday type of way because he's passed through death, suffering, and temptation. I just wanna mention those three things really briefly. I'm aware of my time. 
and I'm aware that it's Labor Day weekend. I've, I've said that several times, so obviously I'm aware of that. Death, <laughs> great. Um, our lives are limited time offers, right? We have to c- confront that reality that, that everyone you've ever known is going to die. It's not the most cheerful thing in the world. Like it doesn't, it doesn't help sell things very well. So we don't meditate on it very much. And, and in some sense, it's like so much of our life is anti-death projects. We're trying to keep this out of our consciousness. We're trying to keep it out of our reality. But every now and then, we, we can't help but, but realize that, that death is, is, is there, is present. It is coming, whatever, whatever we think, right? And it doesn't matter where you are on the belief spectrum. Like you can be the most, like, my, you know, my grandma used to wander through her house, open up, open up caramel candy, singing like, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through. And she's like, all about heaven and whatever that is. And then you have on the other side, like, I, I, a friend uh, recommended to me um, a, a podcast in Sam Harris, who's like, you know, what, this very vocal, sometimes militant atheist author who, who's out there. He, he's, he, at the beginning of his podcast, he was talking about the lessons we learn from the reality that we're going to die, right? No matter where you are in the belief spectrum, uh, you have to confront this reality that death is a part of the human story. This is what Sam Harris said. Do not think that because I, I'm having to quote from him that I, 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 I believe everything that he believes, okay? That's not true of anyone I ever quote, but they're going to be on the screen, okay? He says this, and, and I so, like, my heart was like, hey, militant atheist guy, I so relate to you. This is wonderful. He says, how we think about death changes depending on whether we are thinking about dying ourselves or about losing the people we love. Whichever side of the coin we take here, death is, is really an ever-present reality for us. And that is so whether we are thinking about it or not. It's always announcing itself. On the news, in the stories we hear about the lives of others, in our concerns about our own health, and the attention we play when crossing the street. If you observe yourself closely, you'll see that you spend a fair amount of energy each day trying not to die. And as has long been noted by philosophers and contemplatives and poets, death makes a mockery of almost everything else we spend our lives doing. Just take a moment to reflect on how you've spent your day so far, the kinds of things that have captured your attention, the things you've been genuinely worried about. Think about the last argument you had with your spouse. Think about the last hour you spent on social media. Contemplating the brevity of life brings some perspective to how we use our attention. He goes on to talk about things like road rage and like thinking for a second about like, hang on, I'm gonna die, they're gonna die. Probably a lot of our like big concerns are, you know, overlapping here maybe I just can deal with going slower for a second you know like um but isn't it hard to pull that reality into your perspective most of the time and honestly if I'm honest I don't necessarily want to have that reality you know facing me all the time but the truth is there is a stop point right my life is a limited time offer and the, and, this, and, and the Hebrews passage says, all our lives we have been subject to the fear of death. Any robust life philosophy has to deal with this. This passage is saying that, that Jesus is willing to confront that. And somehow in a robust, hopeful way that Jesus has passed through death in a way and has turned around and offered a way for us to pass through that in union with him. Listen to this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. What a sentence. 
so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. When you think as a human being about how you're gonna break the power of someone who holds someone else captive, almost always we think about superior might. We think about we got more guns than them. We think about the, 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 the revenge narratives that we've grown up watching. Like The way you, you rescue someone is you bring more might to the table. And the way Jesus rescues us from death is not by becoming an active shooter. He lets death trample over him. He lets death, like the alternative way of the kingdom is demonstrated in the way of the cross that Jesus lets death trample over him literally utterly exhausts itself on him, takes everything death has to offer, and then Easter. He Easter's on death. He comes back. He's like, I took everything that you have, and now I'm turning and offering you this, this new life. This is the heart of the gospel. But it also says that he deals with suffering, right? Because death is out there somewhere tomorrow or, 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 or 50 years from now, we don't know. But suffering is real right now. And, and this passage is about depicting the hope for us that Jesus has, has took on our full humanity. So it says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and, the one who are, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Just let that wash over you for a second. What are you dealing with? This week, the passage is saying that Christ has suffered in a truly human way. Not just the big loss of death, but all the small losses along the way. That he identifies with them, that he knows them, that somehow the one who's making us a part of the family is in union with us. Like there's this beautiful poetry here. But just let that wash over them. He's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Anyone who in desperate faith leaps out and says, all right, I wanna share in this. Like, I, I, I trust you that somehow your life and death matters for me, counts for my story. I, I wanna be in on that, that he's not ashamed to call us family. He's fully experienced the human, the human situation. So death and then suffering and then all the way down to like, we can keep those sort of at a distance, but temptation, the, the passage ends by saying, um, <clears throat> and we sort of, the passage ends by mentioning temptation, that he's able to identify with, with any temptation. And, and, and I want to just say for a second, right, inside of Christian circles, we're so familiar with temptation, but outside in the regular world, it's sort of like, is there really such thing as temptation, or is it just like different choices, and even if you make a bad one, you're going to learn from it, well, you know, like, like. What, Kanye, what, years ago, he's like, I'm trying to right my wrongs, but it's funny them same wrongs help, help me write this song. What? Huh? Can't quote Kanye the same way anymore, but. Is there temptation or is there only choices in like one way or the other? The scripture keeps putting out that there is such a thing as temptation, that basically it's a, a, a type of appealing option that comes into your consciousness that would draw you away from God's way or God's character or God's word. That there's a way that God's shalom is coming in the world that's connected to God's faithfulness, his character, his word expressed, his way demonstrated. In the person of Jesus, for example, that temptation comes 
when you try to meet the deep needs of your life without taking God's story into account at all. You're just like, I'll use my own resources. I'll do my own thing. That there's not just choices in one way or another, like we're all going up the same mountain. That actually there, are, there is small deaths along the way. That temptation in the New Testament is represented in such a stark way that it's like it's an invitation away from the way of life. That there is choices that you can make that actually sort of dim your desires, that distort what you come to want in and out of life, that can malform your appetites, that you can sort of feed these things and they can lead you away from God's character, God's way and God's word, away from community into isolation. So temptation is like, Okay, I know that like in the big D death, you know, Jesus maybe in the cross and Easter, and that's a great message. And then suffering like in the meta level, but what about my personal pain? And then how about the ways that I'm personally tempted to choose against life, to choose selfishness, to put only my interests in the, in the matrix of considerations? passage is saying that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. If you want to look at two narratives where, where this is depicted, there's the wilderness moment after he's baptized where it says the spirit leads him out. And there's an, those are archetypal temptations. Like every single thing that he faces out there is connected back to the deepest longings of, of, of humanity. So uh, most of the time, if temptation is really tempting, it's because it's connected to a real deep human longing, like something that you actually need. But if you try to get it just out of your own resources and not and connected to God and to other people in, in relational love, you're gonna break things and break yourself. And Jesus faces each one of those and you can see how he does it. He keeps going back to the promises of God. He keeps going back to this other vision of life. And then there's Gethsemane. At the end, when he's facing the temptation, will he bail out on this redemption project because it involves him going through an agonizing, torturous death on the cross, and he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's saying, there's got to be another way. And you have prayed that prayer. I know that prayer. There's got to be another way. And this is saying, Jesus, whatever else he is, is a faithful and merciful high priest he can so identify with the biggest meta-level D death stuff and the smallest, most intricate, detailed temptation of your thought life. I, at the, at, at whatever scale you're dealing with it with, he's able to be present. I think that's a beautiful message to end this series on God's faithfulness, that it comes to us in the person of Jesus. <laughs> It comes to us in this person who has taken on our full human experience and saying, I know, literally, I know what it's like. That he can, in some, way, in some real way, be a reliable savior to you, a reliable guide through a complicated and painful and sometimes difficult life. That he is a merciful and faithful high priest. So this is what I want to ask you as we prepare to come to the table. Where are the places that you're wrestling with the pain of death? Where are the places that you are like, this suffering, I can't take it anymore. I feel so alone. I feel so misunderstood. And where are the places that you're facing temptation? They're helpful because they're so real, I think. And Jesus is saying, I, I know exactly what this is like. And so the invitation to us after something like this is to say, okay, can I come and unburden my heart to God? 
about these matters and what would it be like to experience an inrush of his love, to count on his faithfulness and then maybe even to experience his faithfulness. I think the last words I want to give us come from a little bit later in this this same letter and it's specifically how you do this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. My prayer for us, Trinity Grace Park Slope, is that we would not grow weary and lose heart even though the world is very difficult. It is also very hopeful. And we can also be united to this Jesus who has passed through these things and is offering us a way. We can look to this Jesus It says, for the joy before him, he went to the cross, the broken body and shed blood. What's the joy before him? Like, what are we talking about? Getting it over with? Eh. No, accomplishing redemption. That means for the joy of making you family. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, said, sons and daughters, come to this meal. Come and receive my life. Come and let my life be your life. Come and let my resurrection be your resurrection. Come and let my spirit be your spirit. Come and have full union and full share and full life like was intended in the beginning, even though it has been run through with brokenness. You're invited to this life. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that your faithfulness would wash over each of us that the wave of your Holy Spirit would communicate your love in these moments. I pray as we prepare to worship in song, as we prepare to, re- to be nourished by this meal, that we could pour out our hearts. I pray, God, for each of us, whether it's the actual pain of death, some very real suffering, or any manner of temptation, I pray that we would pour out our hearts to you in the next moments, that we would receive the nourishment and promise of your love, the hope of the gospel. That you have died so that you can offer us life and life to the full. May this meal pick us up. May you speak by your Holy Spirit to each person to know how we should respond. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.